Many years ago, I had dinner with Gus Dungeon. You wouldn't know that name unless you were a, a music aficionado. But he was the producer behind Elton John's most acclaimed recordings. David Bowie's Space Oddity drove a Rolls Royce and had that whole rock and roll vibe. I asked him how he got his big break and he took me back to his early days at Decca Records. He was a sound engineer and Bowie was in the studio with his debut album. It developed so much confidence and so much energy working with Bowie that I decided to, to lead Decca and form my own company called Tuesday Productions. And then another break happened because Ellen John listened to that album, loved it and said, I want to work with that producer because I love the way he brings together the music and the words. I've always been fascinated with this concept of collaboration. One plus one equals 11. You know, collaboration is one of those overused business words. And I can understand why, because the intent is people coming together to produce something, to get to a desired outcome. And in this gig economy, collaboration is becoming one of the most important skills. It sounds so simple, but it's often very difficult to achieve. Because collaboration, you need to factor in the human factor egos, the power struggles, changing priorities, turf wars, a lack of alignment, bad or even non-existent communication. I was in the agency business for 30 years and for 20 of those years, someone I loved to collaborate with was this guy called Bennett Klein. He had the wildest brain. I mean, you could give Bennett a brief and overnight, and I mean overnight, he wouldn't just digest a brief. He'd effortlessly move between strategy and creativity. And he'd come back and surround the problem with a dozen, sometimes two dozen ideas, and many of them were visualized. And my role in this collaborative process, I was the synthesizer. I was the producer. I tried to connect the dots, add some sizzler substance, put two or three things together, try to really zero in on the insight that mattered most. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today, I have a very special guest on Chatter That Matters. His name's Bob Ezra. He's one of the top music producers in the world. He doesn't just produce, he arranges music, he co-writes songs. Alice Cooper called Bob Ezra his George Martin. Pink Floyd, The Wall, the best-selling Kiss album, Destroyer, artists including Deep Purple, Lou Reed, The Kings, Taylor Swift, Peter Gabriel, David Gilmore, Rod Stewart, Nine Inch Nails, Jane's Addiction have all worked with Bob Ezra. And he hasn't just been inside the studio as a producer or arranger or songwriter. He's also produced live and television extravaganzas, created a computer software company. It gives back by encouraging the next generation to fall in love with music. The major philanthropist, advocate for climate change. And as you'll soon learn, he has so many insights and life lessons to share. Bob Ezrin, producer, writer, inventor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. Welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that's a good introduction. Thank you very much. What's the best way to describe you? Because your body of work is so broad. What would it be in an elevator? Somebody says, what do you do for a living? Oh, goodness gracious. Well, I think uh, when someone says, what do you do for a living? I say, I make things. To say, I am a, that right away sets you up for a dangerous sense of self-worth, right? Where you, you could say, I am a producer. Well, I'm not a producer. I do produce. Apparently, I'm good enough at it that people keep paying me to do it, so I produce. 
But, you know, I write and, uh, and encourage other people to do stuff and I mentor and things like that. Those are the things that I do. If you ask me what I am, you know, I hope what I am is a responsible family man. I think that would be the best way to describe me who happens to have a creative streak. So a responsible family man, I'll, I'll accept that. But when I look at the body of work you've done, the different lanes you've traveled, I mean, producing music, writing, arranging, extravaganzas, how did you ever find time to be a responsible family man? Well, I, you know, I can say that certain points early on, I wasn't so responsible. I was a rock and roll lunatic, like all the people I was working with. And, and I mean, I was just a baby, you know, when I first started in this, well, let's back up. When I got married, I was a baby. I was 17 years old and my wife was 18 and we had a baby. I was forced at a very early age to try to figure out, you know, how to be a quote unquote responsible family man. And, and I wasn't ready for it at all. You know, I party and I fooled around and I did all those things that rock and roll people are supposed to do, we think. And it caused, you know, terrible pain for my ex-wife. And it was probably not that great for my kids either. And for me, it robbed me of an opportunity to have a really deep and meaningful relationship with my family and my friends at that stage of my life. I think most of us do the best we can with the equipment that we have. Was there someone along the way that kind of helped point you down that different path? Or was that just something you came to terms with just looking in the mirror? Coming very close to the precipice again in my second marriage, that shook me. I didn't look in the mirror. I looked across the table at my beautiful family and these people that I loved so much. And I realized that I was screwing up. And I immediately went into like intensive therapy and I went into uh, a 12 step program and, and did what they call 90 and 90 to get myself started, turned my life around. Let's be clear, during all of this period, most of the time I was highly functioning and I was very affectionate, very loving, very caring about my kids and, and also about my spouse. I was very loving and affectionate, but the minute I'd leave, and go out in the rock and roll roads and things would get crazy again, right? And then that would come and bleed into my life. And did you see, feel that your work was at the beginning when you were part of that whole rock and roll genre that you felt you were better, more creative, more stimulated when you had, whether it was alcohol or drugs in your system, or did you realize that after the fact that you were a better creative person without those distractions? Well, certainly they you know, these things are psychotropic and they, you know, they alter your perception of reality. They alter your, they alter everything, your brain chemistry and stuff like that. So better is not, you know, that's not really an appropriate term. It's a relative thing, right? I was different. No question. I was different when I was on drugs or drinking or whatever it was that was going around at the time. It, it wasn't that I was an addict because it was just sort of whatever rock and roll stuff was happening. I'm, I was in as a bottle of whiskey, right? Let's drink, you know, there's some cocaine. Okay. You know, if somebody passes the joint, no problem. When you are altering your normal function with drugs and alcohol, that suddenly there is an extra element that gets introduced, which is the, the effort you have to expend just to seem normal. Right. So because because there is a part of me that goes like, whoa, I hate a sloppy drunk. And when I see somebody with their jaws, swinging because they've had too much coke or something like that. I look at them like, so what an a 
asshole, you know, so I didn't want to be that asshole. So I wanted to look uh, in control. And of course I had to be in control. I was the the leader of the sessions and stuff like that. So there was that additional element added of having to work hard to, as my father used to say, avoid the appearance of evil. Okay, let me explain that. So when I was a kid, that we were a huge family, and and we were we had family dinner every night of the week, and we would invite every stray in the neighborhood or or visiting. My dad was a professor of medicine in Toronto, visiting uh, dignitaries and professors from other schools and other places. So there was always something going on, and my dad was acutely aware of appearances. My father used to put on a three piece suit to go buy bagels on Sunday morning. Anyway, so we're, you know, we would sit at the table and I used to, I would pick at my fingers and he hated that, just drove him crazy. So I would be picking at my fingers and he would go, stop picking at your fingers. And I go, I'm not. And he would go, well, then avoid the appearance of evil. A <laughs> <laughs> good lesson in life. Tell me a bit about your family life. I remember when I, I interviewed Harry Connick Jr. and Gilmore, and they talked about how music was a big part of their upbringing. Was that part of your life in a doctor's house, that music and that sort of fusion of creativity found a way in a world really more based on science? The entire family sang and played instruments. And, and my dad worked his way through the end of high school and college playing bass in big bands. He, my dad played bass in the Bobby Jimby Orchestra. Ironically, when he finally had to give it up, the guy who got his job was Jack Richardson who was my first boss, my mentor, the guy who gave me my biggest break by handing me Alice Cooper. We still got a long way to go. We come back, Bob Ezrin talks about what it's like to work with Alice Cooper. And we all sang and danced as kids. Next down for me is a pair of twins at Twin Brothers. And then my sisters came along. They joined the crew. We were like the, the Jewish Von Trapp family in Toronto. <laughs> it, was, it was all singing, all dancing. If I hear you calling, but I can't come home right now. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Death, what can that's where it all started, and maybe that's why performance, creation, all that stuff to me, that's just an essential part of life. My special guest is Bob Ezrin, one of the most accomplished music producers in the world. So what instrument did you play in this sort of uh, family, partridge family, where everybody... Well, but my, I got to throw my mom in here. So my mom was a concert pianist, and I would sit under the piano and listen to her do the Warsaw Concerto so that I could hear, I could watch her feet, could see where her hands were going and stuff. And I just developed there a kind of a cellular relationship with the essential nature of music. How did that move into you becoming a producer and sort of the quarterback of trying to bring talent together? How did that all begin? We're surrounded by um, opportunity. I can't be more grateful for having been born in that family, in this city, in this country at that time. Toronto was like, it was boiling under the surface and about to erupt in multicolors. You know, they, they used to call it good, great Toronto, right? Because it was like the most boring city on earth or whatever. But underneath all of that, there was this layer of creative people who were just, they were champing at the bit to get out 
and show their, their talents and all that stuff. And, and in the 60s, that's when the explosion happened. A lot of it has to do with the erection of City Hall downtown. At that time, it was a massively controversial thing. It was like people were just thinking that it was the worst eyesore they'd ever seen. How could we do it? The Jolly Green Giant toilet downtown Toronto. What are we doing? You know, beautiful Royal York Hotel. And then we have that, you know. But what that did was it introduced a new way of thinking. It was a modern piece of art. There's no question about it. And it gave us a central kind of meeting area where people could go and they could congregate and they could sing and play and dance. And suddenly there were talented people everywhere, particularly in television here at that time. That's when Lauren Michaels was happening. And that's when Peppy at Nailsworth were happening. And that's the Wayne and Schuster show and the Jack Duffy show and all that kind of stuff. My brothers and I did a lot of TV work. My brothers and I were the voices of Shreddy. We did the, the first big Shreddy's jingle. What's great about that? We were working in studio. I love the smell of them. I love the vibe. I love the camaraderie. I love the sort of mixture of like technology and stuff. Like, look at all these toys. This is amazing. These things that do stuff. And then all these creative people at the same time. You know, on top of that, my, my uncle Sid, my dad's brother, even though he was a lawyer, he had the largest privately owned jazz collection in Canada. And he was the first guy to have stereo. So I used to go down to his basement to put on records, and he had tape machines. I love tape machines. So I would make recordings of my own. And then I would sit between the speakers and listen to the first stereo records coming out, like Spike Jones and the band that plays for fun in spooktacular stereo, where they would be bouncing things from the left to the right, you know, and all of that fed into a sort of preternaturally overly active imagination. And then when I was introduced to Jack Richardson by his partner, Alan McMillan, who really, it's really Alan who gave me my biggest break by bringing me into Nimbus. Alan and I worked on a musical here in Toronto. He loved what I did with the music. And he said, I want you to meet my partner. I came into Jack and I said, I want to be a manager. I want to manage musicians and teach them how to play and do all this stuff. And Jack goes, no, no, you want to be a producer. He taught me. Literally six months into my learning cycle, which is nothing, Alice Cooper walks into the office in Nimbus 9 at the time that the Guess Who had American Woman out. It was the number one record in the world. They were the number one band in the world, produced by Jack Richardson. And the Alice Cooper Group manager, Chef Gordon, comes in the door. He wants that Guess Who sound for Alice Cooper. And Jack, who was a very conservative man, takes one look at all the, the pictures of these five creatures of indeterminate gender and scary costumes and, you know, weird makeup and, and weaponry and all this stuff. And he's like, I want nothing to do with it. But being the polite Canadian that he is, he said, well, this is very interesting. And uh, I'll have the kid, meaning me, go and check out the band. And if the kid likes them, then I'll check out the band. And then perhaps we, you know, so that was it. Chef leaves the room and Jack basically tells me to get rid of them. So then he sent me to New York. And I walked into a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It was like stepping into the bowels of hell. There were people in nothing but black spandex. They had spider eyes, black lipstick, black fingernails, jet black hair. They were white as wraiths. I, I just thought I had died and gone to hell, right? I sat there with a friend, another CBC baby, Alan Nichols, who was playing the lead in Hair at the time. We sat there together. We watched the show. When it was over, I went, what was that? He goes, I don't know, but I think I liked it. And I said, well, I think I loved it. I'm calling a dream, so what? 
So I go bounding up the stairs and into the dressing room, and I basically commit us to working. You know, I say, we'll do it. We will do it. <laughs> that was that. And then I had to go back to Toronto and, and plead for my job and my life. And Jack, you know, I was just, I was talking to Jack. Listen, this, you know, this was not rock and roll. This was like theater. There was no t-shirts. There was no jeans. They had lights and sets and props. And they, they had feathers and pillows and stuff. This is not just music. It's the beginning of a cultural movement, Jack. Finally, Jack goes, enough already. If you like it so much, you do it. To his credit, he ran interference for me with a label that had no idea who I was. Warner Brothers like, who's that? And had absolutely no interest in my doing the record. But Jack uh, allowed me to go to Detroit and work with the band. We did four songs to start with, one of which was I'm 18. Talk to me about those four songs with Alice Cooper. When you went in, did you feel like you were an imposter? Did, you must have been beyond nervous that you were there representing, you know, this role of producer six months into your education. There was a self-conscious part to me, but then there was also this confidence in performance. I don't, I can't really explain that. I rarely had stage fright. So going into Detroit, I wasn't afraid of being able to do something. I wasn't really sure what it ought to be. I just put myself in the room with these people. I realized that my job was to be the Jack. I had seen Jack work. Jack was boss. He was funny about it. He was warm. They called him the bear affectionately, but iron fisted. This is when we start. This is when we end. You do it right or you do it again. I emulated Jack, but I also channeled all of that stuff I learned when I was learning classical music and conclusions that I had reached listening carefully in my uncle's basement to all of those records. And I had to synthesize that really quickly into a sort of metier, you know, into a, you know, like, okay, I got to clean this song up. Okay, first things first, let's take a look at the rhythm. Let's make sure the rhythm is strong. Now let's look at the, at the melody and, and what travels on that rhythm and, and, and the words. Oh, yes, we're telling a story. We've got to look at the words. Bass and drums, let's get them tight. Now let's add Alice. Let's take a look at the lyrics. Let's look at the melody. Is this, are, do we have the right number of syllables or the right number of, of notes? You know, is it, is it as powerful as it could be? And now let's fill in all the counter melody stuff and the lead. They had never worked like this before. In fact, they never listened to each other that carefully before. When I had Neil and Dennis playing, just the two of them, Dennis, stand there. Now watch Neil's foot, the drummers. Watch his foot. Every time that bass drum hits, we need a bass note. They started paying attention and they started blending their parts. Before you knew it, we had this ballsy, tight rhythm, layer Alice on top right away. And then when we put it all together at the end of the day and we heard the song for the first time, everybody looked at each other. We all went, we're good. <laughs> I went to school with Alice Cooper, no two ways about it. Literally, they beat the crap out of me on a daily basis, and I had to fight back. Um, I learned that if I'm going to be the coach, I can't be bullied by the quarterback. Otherwise, it becomes anarchy. This is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Bob Ezrin shares some powerful life lessons. 
Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout out to First Up with RBCX Music that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform, to find new fans through media exposure and access industry experts and mentors. RBC is enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC. He was our first, the first guy that we listened to. We didn't listen to Frank Zappa. We didn't listen to the other producer. All of a sudden, Bob Ezrin came in and said, you need a signature. He said, well, when you hear a Doors song, you know it's the Doors. When you hear a Beatles song, you know it's the Beatles. He said, when you hear Alice Cooper right now, it's, it could be any psychedelic band. He said, now we need to give you a signature. We worked for about half a year on relearning how to be Alice Cooper. And all of a sudden, 18 came out, and that was our signature sound right then. And school's out, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And, and people would hear it on radio and go, oh, that's Alice Cooper. No more Mr. Nice Guy. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Bob Ezrin, one of the most accomplished music producers in the world. So it, Bob brought that to us. He was our George Martin, you know. That has to be one of the greatest compliments you've ever received. Because you got to say what George Martin was considered the fifth Beatle. It's beyond a compliment. But that's the closest that he can say to I love him. But I can say I love him. I love Alex Cooper. It's part of this love affair that I've had with, with him and Chef sort of brotherhood that we've had for now it's 51 years that's that's amazing right uh, yeah we were babies when we started but 51 years ago we started working together a lot of times we face that who has influence and who has authority i mean your case yeah. it was defined by where you sat in the studio but what advice can you give to other people where they might feel unmatched uh that person has more currency more credentials more experience it's won awards it's the creative artist to have someone say you belong and have a seat at the table. We have to start off with some fundamental rules. I, I read a, an interesting quote from the Dalai Lama, and it actually reflects my attitude towards life. Most people spend their time living in places that don't exist yesterday and tomorrow. They walk into a room and what they wonder is what effect what they are about to say might have on the room after they say it. They haven't said it yet. The room hasn't reacted yet, but they're already going through the senses of either self-doubt or self-congratulation before the event has even occurred. And while that's happening, they've walked into the room and missed the opportunity to take a breath, just be in the room, listen to what everybody else is doing, check everybody else out, figure what's going on, and then decide where you fit in. If you walk in with a sense of trepidation, if you walk in with a sense of worry that they might not like you, you're defeated before you start. You have to walk in saying, I don't know what's going to happen. So I've had the honor of being to the Grammys a couple of times and going to their music cares on a Friday night where someone mm -hmm. is honored and their friends come out and play what they feel is the best body of work. If you were being honored, what would be the songs that would you felt best exemplify your ability to, to create that, that magic? 
I mean, I would, I would really love to have the bigger hits, you know, that people know from Another Brick in the Wall, Comfortably Numb, to Schools Out, to, you know, Beth, to uh, Detroit Rock City, Shout It Out Loud, Salisbury Hill. Climbing up on Salisbury Hill, I could see the city. But I would also like to include the Bocelli, you know, Fall on Me, the Andrea Bocelli and Matteo Bocelli duet, and maybe even uh, Return to Love that we did with Ellie Goulding and Andrea. That would constitute enough for a performance in a tribute show. How do you know when you're creating something that's not just a hit song, but they live beyond the moment? They can stretch and span across generations. They evoke memories in people. They bring you back in time. I mean, how do you know when you're at that point where this just might be a masterpiece. I often don't know really how to get to where it is that I want to go. I know where I want to go. Sometimes it takes experimentation or learning. It's amazing how much I learn on every single project, how I, you know, adopt new tools. I, you know, I try a different approach to performance or miking or any of that sort of stuff. And I know very well when I arrive, I can hear it in my head. And sometimes I hear something, that's where I want to go, but great accidents happen along the way, like the solo for Comfortably Numb, which David Gilmore blew my brains out with when he played it, just like that, in the studio on pretty much his first take. And actually, in another brick in the wall, that solo on the ending is his first take. Not pretty much, it's the first take. So I lied to him, I said, look, can you just play along with the ending here, because I'm just getting a level. And I just recorded him as he played along with the end. And I just said, okay, thank you, that's it. <laughs> He's like, well, wait a minute. I said, no, 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 wait a minute. This was amazing, you know? And people still talk about that solo. Guitar players, like, they hold that up as, as part of the Bible. I'm open to change. I love change. I love change. I love challenge. I love to learn. My favorite time in the entire world is when I'm the dumbest person in the room. I love that. So different people are coming into your studio. You mentioned that, you know, for example, it's how you learn to work with them. How do you manage the different egos and the entourage and everything that comes with stardom? I mean, you've had very big names that you mentioned earlier. How do you know that you're going to pull out the best out of them versus them feeling you're just a hired gun? You know, one of the things that I teach students is if your job is going to be the leader, right? That's your job. You're going to be a leader. Leadership is not given, it's taken. You have to learn to lead. You have to walk in and lead. But you've got to balance that out with all the other important principles in life, the most fundamental of which is treat everyone with love and respect and as an equal until proven otherwise. You walk into a room, you put people at ease, but you take charge right away. Now, you always take a risk when you do stuff like that because you may walk into a room where you take charge and you declare yourself a leader and they'd already voted and you, you, know, you weren't going to be a leader. You were just going to be, as you say, a hired gun. In those rooms, you have a little bit of a conflict. But I can tell you in 51 years of doing this, I've never had that situation. I got fired once off a game. Who fired you? David Lee Roth fired me off of his <laughs> album. Later on, when I was doing the Jane's Addiction album at Henson Studios in Los Angeles, David was in the next room and he would come out 
and try to hang with us while we were sitting at the, at the table having lunch or something. And he's a, you know, he's like a 24 seven performer. He's always on, he's telling jokes, he's doing stuff. And he was working very hard to ingratiate himself with us. And I, I got the sense that in retrospect, he was feeling somewhat guilty about having done it. I never knew why I was there. And then I wasn't. There. What star do you wish you worked with, uh, but never got a chance to do it? Well, I would have loved to have worked with the Beatles intact. I've worked with them separately. Some of them. I didn't get a chance to work with John Lennon, though I knew John. I would have loved to have worked with the Four Tops. Leroy Stubbs' voice, there's just like, every time he opened his mouth, I just stopped, you know, and took a deep breath. I would have loved to have worked with Keon Warwick. It probably would have been dangerous if I had worked with her because I loved her, <laughs> you know, not just physically. I loved her. Yeah. Um, you know, pretty much the people that I wanted to work with, I got to work with. Trust me. I take none of what's happened to me for granted. None. I was standing in a river of opportunity, like that famous poster of the bear that's standing there with his mouth open as the salmon leaps into it, right? Yeah. I was standing in a river of opportunity. I had two choices. One was I could be scared of what was coming and get out of it, or I could open my mouth and let the salmon jump in, right? And I just embraced every, every opportunity that came my way. I was in the path of success. That's the only way you get success. You get an opportunity, you work hard, you get something, and from that, you get a sense of success and sometimes great rewards. I was really lucky that I could find the river of opportunity, that it was so apparent and so clear and so near to my home. Some people have to go to find it, but it's there. It's everywhere. It's in every major city. It's in every small town that's got a a band or a club or a theater or an art gallery. It's there. You just have to go there and make yourself a part of it. Open your arms, open your heart, open your eyes. You're one of the most successful producers in the world, but you also branched outside the studio. You started producing extravaganzas, got involved in some entrepreneurial activities. Is this just you needing to feed that energy and to constantly be creating and having that curiosity? As you said, I, I know what the desired outcome is. I just don't know how to get there. So is that just looking for new outcomes? You know, I have a very, very strong sense that we have got to do something about the environment well, we're way past it now. You know, we're way past having to do it. Now it's life or death. I have to use whatever power I have and whatever brain power I have to try and get that message out and touch as many people with it as I possibly can. I became a member of the Canadian Journalism Foundation because I believe that a free press is essential to getting the word out on these things. You're giving a lot <laughs> back, not only mentoring young students that want to get involved, but uh, Melody Doan, who's I'm a huge fan of what she's doing with the ukulele program in schools. Well, first of all, I can take no credit for what Melanie has done in schools. This is her effort, her work. These, these are her classes. She's remarkable. And she relates so well to kids. Now, her dad developed this teaching method for ukulele, and then she's carrying it forward, the Doan method. And it's very effective. It works really well. But what, what she and I are doing 
it's a, a kids' TV series that we we started together, we developed together, called Ukulele U. <laughs> and it's taken an awfully long time to get it off the ground because COVID, Melanie's got the ball. She and her brother Creighton, who is a very talented producer and musician, I, I owe them a huge amount of love, respect, and gratitude. Music education is a big part of who I've been for a long, long, long time because, you know, we started taking it out of school. When that began to happen, I think that's where culture and society started to change and become a little less human. It's not about, you know, growing the next Brian Adams in every classroom, but it is about growing better people. You know, I want a generation of kids that are coming up with highly developed soft skills, with creativity, sense of imagination, sense of cooperation, respect for each other. So my final question for you is Paul McCartney called Good Vibrations the greatest song ever written. It was perfect. Do you have a favorite song? Yeah, but it's not a popular song. It was a lullaby. My mother used to sing to me. It's called the Russian lullaby. She used to sing it to me every night. It goes, every night I hear them croon a Russian lullaby. And that, my friend, that's a perfect song. Bob, I always end with talking about the three things I've learned. For the listeners, I love when you say leadership isn't given, it's taken. And I think that's an incredibly powerful lesson that just titles don't matter. It's your ability to go in and contribute, collaborate. Second thing is this sense of desired outcome. I know where I want to go. I'm just not sure how to get there. And I think that just feeds your curiosity and your passion and this energy and this appetite for life is that there's so many desired outcomes in your mind and the sense of having to figure out how to get there is wonderful. And the third thing is the interesting places you found yourself in life underneath your mom's piano, watching the feet on her move the pedals and the songs and the sounds and her hands dancing across the board to when you went into the studio the first time and said, I love it here. And the final thing is just your sense of being in the moment, how important it is not to fall on your past or to pursue your future, but to just walk into a space and say, I'm going to just take a moment to be in this moment, to try to understand what is going on and what is happening. And I think that's some of the most powerful advice I've heard yet on Chatter That Matters. So I wish this was a 10 part series because I have to imagine there's so many stories that you have, but uh, I, I do appreciate you being part of Chatter That Matters. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, there's a lot of stories. You, you, you stick around long enough, you amass a few. <laughs> If you listen to my Harry Connick podcast, or even Gil Moore, the drummer of the Triumph, both great episodes in terms of why music matters, you know that my go-to person at RBC for music is Jeff Lindsay. He's the senior manager of brand marketing. He puts RBC's resources, helps networking, mentorship, leadership to help aspiring Canadian artists find the audience that they deserve. Jeff, welcome back to Chat of the Matters. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tony. Good to be here. I think it's got to be one of the most rewarding things when you see uh, someone has such immense talent and the only thing that's stopping them is opportunity and you provide that opportunity. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really special to be able to play a small part in these young artists' career, definitely. And myself personally, I'm in a privileged position to be able to provide that uh, as part of RBC. So Bob Ezrin, who is 
certainly one of the top producers in the world, also a song arranger, songwriter, just a force of creative energy. I asked him what it's like to try to move the ball forward when there's so many forces in the room with artists and record companies and stuff. And he said, you know what? Leadership is given, not taken. Yeah. To be honest, I could not agree more with that sentiment. One of my favorite books is by an author named Robin Sharma called The Leader Who Had No Title. The argument essentially that he makes is that leadership has absolutely nothing to do with what you're handed or the position that you occupy within a company. It's all about the brilliance of your work, you know, your ability to influence and inspire while also helping those around you to do the same. So Jeff, you're a young guy and you're, you're out there and you've got this sort of energy to you. What happens in business or in life when you hit a wall because somebody happens to be sitting in a box with a title and says to you, well, it's not your time or you have to wait before you have the right to kind of make that kind of contribution? Yeah, I would say it's, it's all about how you handle that, that adversity and speed bumps, not stop signs, right? And you can find different ways to work with, you know, who you might categorize as difficult personalities to, you know, share your unique perspective that is valid because, you know, you in and of yourself are a consumer consuming, you know, music day to day to bring it back to to what I do. Your opinion is, is as valid as everyone else's. Another thing that Bob brings out is this sense of manifestation, desired outcome. You have to really see yourself where you want to go to give you the energy to get there. Do you see that the difference between artists that make it and don't make it is this real sense of belief that their destiny is about finding that audience that their music deserves? They need to be the hero of their own story. You know, they need to have the talent, they need to have the passion and the drive to succeed. What we as RBC do is, is we provide the opportunities for them to perform, access to industry experts, exposure to new and diverse audiences. But ultimately, it's on them to make the most of it and shoot their shot. Bob also talks about making sure you're also in the moment. If you get too distracted with things that happened in the past or too consumed with what might be in the future, you lose the opportunity to make the most of that moment. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible tension for sure. I, I think there's always a need to balance staying in the present with planning for the future. But I would argue that it's especially important for young musicians, young artists to stay in the moment. You know, if your end goal is too fixed, you may unintentionally miss or pass on potential career and life-changing opportunities. And so to tie it back to RBC, our efforts are really directed towards helping emerging musicians today to sharpen their skills, hone their craft, and make new connections. And in doing so, it's really proven open doors for so many of our artists and presented them with opportunities that simply could not have been knocked out from day one. Jeff Lindsay, I think you're now holding the record as the most RBC appearances on Chatter That Matters. I hope I can knock on your door again. Thanks, Tony. Happy to come back. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.